Hello, and welcome to Capstan Live. We're the podcast that makes sure you pay the real estate taxes you owe and not a dollar more. If you own commercial real estate or advise someone who does, you're in the right place for a real talk about maximizing tax savings. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Capstan Live. I'm Helena Carmel, and today's guest, first-time guest, is a very special guest. This guy has done everything. He's a lawyer, he's a tax guru, he's a subject matter expert in like every subject. It's, it's really remarkable. I'd like to introduce you all to Jacob Wood, who is a regional director of business development here at Capstan. Jacob, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for joining us on the pod. Good morning and thank you as well for having me. We have wanted to get you for a while because we know you're like, Mr. R&D, like if R&D had a face, it might be <laughs> yours. Um, so, so tell me about your, your R&D world. How long have you been doing R&D? Like yeah. forever since you were a tiny baby in your cradle? Probably Absolutely. not. Yeah. So I started my career actually in uh, oil and gas law and I was mm. doing right of, uh, right away negotiations and landowner things, but you know, really I had a, a very strong background in tax. And so I started to get into it about 10 years ago. And um, in that time, I've run several thousand studies, overseen wow. many. Uh, I've done a couple of different types of credits, R&D, also Canadian, uh, UK credits, um, a bunch of different incentives, but have delivered well over $800 million across uh, myself and the teams that I'm on. Uh, 800 so million? Excuse 800 me. You said 800 million. million Listeners, dollars. he said yep. 800 million. Wow. <laughs> Not all How in one that? study. Right, right. right. But, but even cumulatively, that is quite... Quite impressive. Um, uh, yep. You do wow. enough over enough years. And, uh, and it adds know, up. Absolutely. It all adds up. You're like quite the R&D legend. I'm so glad that we tapped you for this discussion because I want to know all about R&D and I want to know how the credit has changed and expanded. And my understanding is that 2022 makes it makes it better than ever. Is that right? Absolutely. So, you know, we should probably start at the beginning. Um, okay. The credit has been around actually for about 40 years. But what you see throughout that time is really uh, an updating and trying to make this more workable for taxpayers. There's been expansions um, and there's a couple of different forces kind of that have, have been at play. One is that Congress and the IRS and then also even in the case law, um, the R&D has been clarified. It's been expanded. More companies have qualified. Um, on the other hand, technology has changed as well for the companies themselves. And so what you have is, you know, companies that are pushing the boundaries of what they can do technologically, and then that playing in very well to Congress and the IRS trying to incentivize companies taking advantage of this. Um, and I should mention kind of for our discussion, I know we talked a little bit about um, some of the history. Um, we're going to skim over a few court cases, but that's its own area of law, mostly okay. We'll talk about the legislative intent um, and the legislative changes that have happened through regulations and such like that. But really, both on the judicial and the administrative front, um, you've really seen a lot of expansions and making this credit better for more people. Yay! That's that's wonderful. And I want I want to skip to the end, but I feel like you're right. We should start <laughs> at the beginning. We should start at the beginning. So I know everything, everything went down. It was 1981. Endless Love topped the charts. It's still a good song. Raiders of the Lost Ark was number one at the box office. And the R&D tax credit was established. Take me back. 
talk to me, Jacob. Absolutely. So it was actually, interestingly, signed into law by President Reagan um, in, uh, in 1981. And you actually can find a picture of this. He's sitting there Ooh. in his cowboy boots with his dog. It's kind of a foggy day. He's got one hand on the dog. And then there's a table set up with a bunch of papers. And there's kind of reporters around. Um, but that was the um, essentially the, the original R&D tax credit. There had been a deduction for R&D expenses since the 1950s, but this was really an effort to increase private investment mm-hmm. into the uh, into, into R&D. It was actually put forth by John Danforth, who was a Republican from Missouri, and his original idea was really to make that private investment bigger. And, and what we see here is actually, historically, the U.S. has done very, very well in basic research and development. So what that is is essentially um, research in laboratories, it's universities, think kind of like Hadron Collider um, or things that are basically discovering kind of how the universe works. That's basic R&D. We've actually- That's basic. That's the, basic. the Hadron Collider is basic. Okay, if you say <laughs> in, so. In the, you know, <laughs> yeah, the tough part now is actually taking that and what Congress had seen, what the economy had seen is the US would come up with this great idea and then the Japanese would come up with the microwave. And they would sell oh. microwave, and they would make millions and millions of dollars in a business setting. That oh, is taking R&D. the pure research and then uh, developing applications. Okay, <laughs> ding ding, it all just clicked for me. Absolutely. Okay. And so this credit has always been focused on business. It's a business credit. There are grants and things if you are a research lab and that's all you do. But this credit is geared towards companies that are creating, making, building things. And Congress wanted to increase the private investment in those sorts of applied R&D where the U.S. was lagging in the 60s and 70s. I see. I see. That that totally makes sense. John Danforth was a, a smart fellow from Missouri. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, no. So, so talk to me about the discovery rule. Like, that's an important part of it, right? Yep. Yeah. When Congress first came up with this, they were trying to uh, figure out ways to, to limit the applicability of the credit because they wanted to make it broad enough for people to claim it, but didn't want to make it so broad that, you know, everybody could claim it for every idea they'd ever had. Right. Um, and so they were trying to, they're trying to target, which is a great idea, but they really constrained it a little too much. So for the first, you know, 15 or, or 20 years of this credit, you had to be creating information that was new to the world. And that was called sometimes the discovery rule, meaning you had to discover new information. And so Really, the companies that claimed this, they were Fortune 500 companies. They were large, large auto manufacturers. Um, It was pretty limited to massive companies because those are the only companies that had very expensive R&D programs where they were applying for patents or they were coming up with really new technology. Brand new, like new to the world, new to the whole world. Okay. That was initially what the discovery rule stated. It had to be a brand new discovery. And only the big guys could take advantage of that because only they had the manpower and the resources and the full departments to be discovering. Is that, is that right? Yeah. If you think about it today, I always think like if I have a good idea, uh, you know, 99.9% of the time, someone's already had that idea and they've already tried it. So I'd like to think I'm unique, but um, (laughs) most of my business ideas, someone's doing it. But what the credit really wasn't incentivizing at that time was if I had a great idea, somebody had already tried it, but I wanted to make it better or I wanted to do it or ah. I to increase marketplace competition. 
by coming out with my own version of something that was maybe a little more efficient or better, that sort of thing. And so the credit was kind of missing out on that. If you look at the number of businesses in the U.S., there's several hundred thousand and only a, a fraction of them, five or 10 percent are over $250 million in gross receipts. But those companies historically have taken the majority of the R&D credits because they're bigger and because they have those research programs. So there was a real problem going into the early 2000s where really the engine of job growth in the U.S., which is the small companies, was not getting any of this benefit. I see. I see. And so that prompted some activity, like a, a pretty big game changer in the early 2000s, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So there was some litigation in the in the courts on this issue where people wanted to do away with the discovery rule. They wanted to say that what they were doing was itself qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was actually a pretty persuasive argument. And if you remember the early 2000s, a lot of jobs were being offshored in the engineering realm. A lot of precision manufacturing was going mm-hmm. over to China, to a lesser extent, India, Korea. Um, and what we've seen today, actually, is a lot of that has come back. And partly it's because of the R&D credit. What they did was they they eliminated the discovery rule first in a couple of cases and then formalizing it in the Treasury um, regulations. And there was a Treasury Directive 9104, um, which came out in 2003 and was effective 2004, that clarified several things. Um, One of the things was doing away with the discovery rule, um, basically saying that information just had to be new to the taxpayer, Um, didn't have to be new to the world. Ah. So the standard shrunk down. The other thing that that uh, directive did that was really helpful was there was this tension between research after commercial production, adaptation, or duplication. These things were barred for the credit You could not claim something that was an adaptation of an existing thing or a duplication or research after commercial production. So you come up with the product and then you start making it and you say, you know what, let's improve this. People weren't able to claim that. What these regulations said was that as long as what you're doing is new or improved as to the functionality, performance, reliability, or quality of the item, then that restarted the development process. So what this really helped... Yeah, it was companies that were building upon things either other people had done or that they had done. And that really opened up the credit for uh, hundreds of thousands of more businesses. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine a bigger game changer. You know, I mean, you that that's amazing. So it went from being com- something that has to be completely, completely brand new for the whole world to, oh, it could be something that you already had, but you're making it better or something somebody else made better. And, and it's not just product, it's also process. So if, you, if you're able to make it more efficiently or whatever, wow, that must have yeah. really opened things up. I mean, most manufacturers that are making something are already making something. And so they're not going right. to be most of the time doing game-changing, you know, inventing something brand new. They're going to be taking what they're doing and they're going to say, let's do a Kaizen or let's do a Six Sigma implementation. Let's improve this. Let's make make twice as much in the same time with the same resources. And, you know, part of the legislative intent, I always love to go back to that because that's really one of the most important things in this credit. Um, There's the concept of spillover economic effects. What that basically means is that when one company does something, other companies are going to get better as a result. And that was something that eliminating the discovery rule really helped was uh, amplify the effect that my business has on your business. Because when I do something better, that's going to inspire 
you, you're going to be able to learn more. There's more stuff in the marketplace. The rising tide lifts all boats kind yeah, of it took, story. it took the development out of a silo where it was just kind of one company doing something new to the world in, in a vacuum in, in one silo. And it, and it basically said, you know, this economy is all working together. And so we're going to recognize that in the credit. I love that. It's like it was contagious, like innovation was contagious. Absolutely. I love yeah. it. I, although we, I feel like we don't, maybe I shouldn't make jokes about things being contagious. Yeah, maybe, like, maybe in this day like and age. Maybe not the best. Yeah, probably. Yes, you know uh, what? Yeah. Okay. But, but <laughs> your point stands. Um, okay. So amazing. So things really, really did change in, in 03. And then in 2006, I know there was another somewhat of a, of a big change. The alternative simplified credit came on the scene. And I, I love anything that says simple, like it's going to simplify things, but things aren't always simple when they say they are. Is the, this credit, was it really simplified? Definitely. And, and that's something where a lot of people get confused by the tax terminology. So there's actually two different methods currently to claim the credit. You can claim it under the regular method and okay. then the alternative simplified. There actually also was another method that some states still have called alternative incremental credit. Okay. Um, but what these all mean essentially is when you look at the R&D in one year, you're not just getting a credit based on that year's activity. There's also an historical component to the credit. So what these different methods do is they've got slightly different multipliers on how much you get back, but they also adjudge different things. So the regular method looks at your expenses and your gross receipts. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it says, how much have you grown relative to your gross receipts in okay. the amount of money? So for every dollar you make, how much did you spend on R&D? The alternative simplified takes out some of those variables and basically looks at just the expenses. And it says, did your expenses grow? Because remember, legislative intent, the point of this credit in part is to grow a company's expenses. So you want companies to invest more year over year. Right. And this credit amplifies the amount you get based on whether you're increasing and it depresses the amount you get if you decrease. So uh -huh. what you want is a company that's not only growing the bottom line, but they're also growing, growing their R&D. They're putting into R&D. Absolutely. I see. I see. Wow. So, and so today, federally today, then you have the two options, the right? Two you methods. have the regular and the alternative simplified. Do people call it like the ASC or something cool people like that? People call it ASC. Yeah. If yeah. you get yeah, deep enough into the uh, the tax vortex, then there's a whole lot of acronyms related acronym. to the I like an acronym. I don't know. I always feel like a like a rapper. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, sure. that, not that cool. Not, not many acrostics, though. We don't have a lot of acrostics. A lot of acronyms. Yeah, we, we should really build on our acrostic game. That, I'll yeah, work on Congress it. Congress saves all those for the legislation. Every, you know, PATH Act is the- I love that. It's so clever. Tax hikes. Tax hikes. I love it. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I love, I, I think they're great. Okay. Anywho. Um, so things got like a little complicated in 2013, moving right along. So I know this section 174 regulations changed the way the credit was allocated. Did that like muddy the waters? Well, yeah. give me some backstory. No, so there was a couple of things that happened in 2013 and going into 2014 that were really, really big. And this is where you see some of the, the last, I would say nine years, there's been a lot of expansions. One of them was actually that um, the 174 regulations clarified what material costs you could claim or supplies in your pro project. So you can take four types of costs, your wages, which is really the, the largest one. It's a jobs credit first and foremost. Right. Second is the material costs. The third one would be rental or lease of computers. 
think cloud computing or mm -hmm. supercomputer. And the last one then would be contractor costs. So people that don't work for you, but you're paying them. And on the material cost side, there was some real um, uncertainty because the rules are written broadly. The standard just says supplies are supplies used in the conduct of R&D. And, and nobody knew really what used is. Is it used and consumed or, or what is that? Oh. And, and what the regulations basically said was that whenever you resolve the uncertainty, so whenever you actually figure out what you're trying to figure out, that's where the costs for materials stops. So if you're running prototypes and you keep running them and then finally you say, oh, we've perfected this it. This is the best one. That's, this is the best one. This is what we're going to use. That's when the R&D stops. Got and it. you would judge that when you look at the materials used. The other thing actually was software expenditures. Um, internal use softwares, Congress had always had a heightened standard for those. It's called the heightened three-part test. And what that does is it makes it a little harder to claim things like if you're doing a, a CRM or ERP internally. Mm -hmm. uh -huh, just for your own business. Because there's an understanding that every business has some right. IT you know, you don't get a credit for setting up your computer network internally, right? Right. That's just basic, like, activity, right? Basic. Absolutely. Yeah. And now you might get it if you set it up for other people, if that's your right. business. Right. Um, but they wanted to take things out that were kind of ancillary to someone's business. Um, <clears throat> what this did, though, is it made the, the distinction between internal and external a little bit easier to decipher. So they said, hey, this stuff is actually external. So if you do an internal system like a CRM and your client can log in and see the progress of their project, like think uh, UPS and they're shipping. Oh, okay. Like you can check your tracking number. Yeah. So UPS could take a credit for that. And <gasps> the Domino's pizza tracker, another- what? Uh, The Domino's pizza favorite. tracker? What? I am sure that they got a credit for that because you get to see it on. on. Now that probably is also- Very cool. Metric. They want to know how fast they're making pizzas. But if you can see where the pizza is in their system, then um, that is an external item. So it kind wow. of made it easier to qualify maybe internal and external use software. I see. I see. So so no, so this was good. This this again clarified things, opened things up, mm -hmm. made it really clear where R and D, you know, material cost stops. This was a winner. This was a winner. Yeah, because you don't want to, as a taxpayer, you don't want to have to go through litigation to understand where the line is. You want good rules so that right. you can apply them to the fact. I always love a bright line rule and we don't have enough of them, I feel like. Exactly, exactly. Or at least some guidance on where yeah. to go. So really yeah. helpful in, in that time. And then really, we didn't get to, to anything for a couple of years until 2015. And I actually remember where I was. It was in, uh, I was actually in New York visiting some friends and um, it was like maybe midnight on... I don't know, December 19th or something, the Protecting Americans Against Tax Act yes. Path Act came out. Um, and that, that was, was a huge win, win. huge win. Yeah, Even I so, remember this, huge. Uh, you know, there was a paper. So, so the credit was enacted on a temporary basis and it was extended every one to three years for 30 years. And so there was even a paper written in 1993 where the researchers said the credit had only been around 12 years. They basically said, and I quote, the credits incentive effects have been substantially diminished by its structure because businesses have been hesitate, hesitant to invest in additional research when the tax benefit of doing so has been temporary and transient. So back in the industry in those days, 
you would wait until the end of the year to see if it was even going to exist. If it was even there. Like, would would your employees working on this have a job? Would you be able to take these expenses? Oh man, of course you couldn't plan ahead. Of course you're not going to throw so tough. much dollars to R and D if you don't even know a credit's going to be there. How can you plan ahead? How could you? Wow, do tax they were very bright in whoever wrote this in 1993. They in saw 1993. the big picture. Yep. Yeah. Now I was in Congress, seventh grade, but Congress never wrote this. Pretty, saw the big picture. They act pretty fast on some things. So after this paper, it only took 22 years for <laughs> the credit. <laughs> to so they got their act together eventually. Oh my God, Jacob, that was the best laugh I ever had on this podcast. That was so good. Tax <laughs> can be fun. It's not no, always, but it can. I be. know you like it. I know he. Listeners, he likes. I got a lot more dad jokes where that comes from. No, so. but that that was good. Yeah, he's a dad. He comes by an honest listeners. Got at least a few. Yeah. So it took twenty two darn years. It took until the passage of the Path Act in twenty fifteen for this credit to be made permanent. Cray, cray. All right. And what else did the Path Act do for R and D? Yeah. So the other big things were that um, you know made the credit permanent, but it also uh, had a special provision. A lot of companies were in alternative minimum tax. So if you have that, you wouldn't be able to claim the R&D credit or you can mm-hmm. claim it, but you couldn't use it mm-hmm. because the alternative minimum tax works as a tax floor. Now it started um, you know, back in the day with very high net worth people, but they didn't index the numbers to inflation. And so more and more businesses got caught up in this. So you might run a $20 million um, software engineering firm or something like that. You might pay AMT and then you could take a credit, but you couldn't use it. Ah, well, that's that seems to take all the fun out of taking a credit, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was not fun, and a lot of times it was a surprise for companies because uh, they get to the end of the year and say, "Oh, we actually don't get to take this." So what Congress did is any any company that had under fifty million dollars in gross receipts for the prior three years average, okay, they could take their their tax below the alternative minimum tax. Ooh, that, that so, winner winner chicken dinner. That's great. So, yeah, we used to humorously refer to these as super credits. Um, oh, if you I love it. AMT turnoff client. Uh, because, yeah, it was the only place you could do this. And so this credit really had a pretty privileged um, you know, standpoint after that. The other thing as well is that the other reason companies couldn't use this credit is if they were a startup. So uh-huh. startup companies think like a small product design firm or a small engineering firm. You might not operate at a profit for the first couple of years. Right. A little you, guy just getting off the ground. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you're, you're sitting there and you're putting money into R&D. Right. But you're not necessarily you you're taking tax. a loss. You're taking a loss for the taking first couple of years. And so what this did is if you were a small company, so you had under $5 million in gross receipts and you were in your first five years of revenue, then you can take this credit against your payroll tax because that's something if you have employees, everybody. You're going to have payroll tax. Certainly. Everybody pays FICA, unfortunately. Yeah. So this was a, a way to use the tax credit against certain types of Ah. now you know whether five years is enough run runway has been a point of discussion Um, there's companies that are in losses for yeah 10 or 15 years also that five million dollar cap you know that takes out companies like you know uber which uh, Mm. was around for a couple of years but they they scaled their revenue still didn't have profitability. So there's some ways to improve it even further, but it was a great step in the right direction. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm just thinking about how how powerful the PATH Act really was. I mean, what that was really transformative, I bet, for a lot of people. Um, and, and so when TCJA came around in 2018, I mean, that was more good news or was it more of a mixed bag? Yeah, it, it was overall good. Um, overall a good. mixed. 
<clears throat> because they put in there a little bit of a ticking time bomb where they to to rate the bill to be cheaper. So when Congress looks at these bills, they look at them five to 10 years out. That's called scoring the bill. So they give the bill a score of how much it's going to cost. Um, sometimes I feel like do- I'm in in Washington. They score <laughs> the bill. It's like well, fancy. So they always want to talk about the price tag, but you know, it's uh, you got to read the fine print. So what they did is um, they put in a provision that after 2022 or in 2022 and beyond, you you could not expense your R and D um, expenses, which didn't change the credit, but it made it so you have to amortize them. So let's just say you have $5 million of expenses and you have a $500,000 credit. You can still take the credit, but that $5 million of expenses is now going to be amortized over five years. Uh-huh. And so you, you will show that first year income of $5 million, but then you will take essentially a $1 million deduction against that income. So it's a little silly but what it does is in the short term, it raises tax revenues because companies will pay money. After three or four years, you actually end up with enough deductions that are stacked where it doesn't change anything. So it's really just a short term bit of pain that companies may have to go through. Now, everybody hopes that this gets changed Ooh. and it probably will before the end of the year. Well, that would be that would be promising. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is in some bills. Um, but that was the one negative thing. Now, the really positive thing, though, was that when you take what's called the 280C election, meaning when you claim the credit, the credit itself is taxable, and you essentially lose the amount of credit, which is equal to your marginal tax rate. What you can do on an original return is check a box and you reduce the credit. But when Congress wrote this, they pegged this to the C Corp tax rate. And the C-Corp tax rate is now 21%. So if you're a shareholder in a pass-through entity and you are paying tax at a 37% rate, if you claim the credit and added it into your income, which is one way of doing it, you would lose 37% of the credit. But if you check this box, you can reduce the credit by 21%. So basically- That's awesome. You were in a pass-through entity, your credit on a nominal basis that you actually get back went up about 21 and a half percent because um, because of the way the tax laws were. So that was a really great feature for pass through entities. Um, they could they could use more credit and they could get more credit. Um, but obviously, this change in 2022 that we've all been watching. Wow. So wait, just to reiterate that for listeners, you, that was the 280C election, right, Jacob? I feel that's like that's 280C election. I feel like that's, that's just something only- important to know about the really important thing is that that is only available on an original filed return so no amending what we tell our cpa partners is even if you've got a company where you think they might claim in the future unless they're paying if they're passed through in particular unless they're paying tax at a really low rate like 10 percent, which is you know you don't have to make much money to get beyond that it it makes sense for most companies to claim the 280c election on a blank form that's called a protective election even if they don't claim the credit for a number of years, when you go back and amend, you can then use that as if it were an original return. So ah. you will save your clients. I, I unfortunately had a client one time that they their CPA did not do this. And oh, no. they asked me, they said, you mean we lost $50,000 by oh, not checking no. a box? And you know, unfortunately, it's one of those weird tax rules, but that's why it's so important to have planning advice when you're looking at this, even if you don't want to move on it right now to set yourself up right claiming it like that is the best way to go. 
Okay, I'm so glad that we reiterated that and the importance of planning ahead, working with a third party if needed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, whoa, that ah, that's that one hurts. There's never been a better time to look at this, and this is really the best time to look at it is right now because yes, talk to me about what's happening right now. I'm doing like jazz hands. This is some good news, listeners. Absolutely. So there's a bunch of bills that have gone through. There's the Chips Act, uh, Chips and Science Act, which you know kind of sounds like a snack. Not potato, um, regretfully, what listeners. What that does, though, if you are a, a semiconductor uh, manufacturer, there are some special credits. So in addition Ooh. to R&D, you can claim other incentives that are related to R&D. So what it does is it amplifies your investment in semiconductor manufacturing support. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act as well. Yes, it, it been waiting for it. Tell absolutely, us. The IRA. It increased the amount of tax credit that can go against your um, your FICA taxes on the payroll. Um, now, it's going to depend. The companies that are going to benefit from this most are ones that start up investing a lot. Like if you get some funding, like Series A funding or seed funding, okay. and you go and try to build a software product, this is really helpful for you because what it's going to do is it could inject up to $500,000 per year Whoa. into your business to offset payroll tax. So the more investment you have starting out, the more likely this is going to apply to you. The old rule was two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh, so it now, doubles doubles it theoretically, and that would be annually. You can offset your payroll tax for several years potentially if you want to hire a bunch of people and invest in some kind of a product. Mostly, we're seeing it in the software space, but maybe product design, anything that's getting funding or or starting with some significant capital, but not maybe making a profit really potentially advantageous to look at this. And then I would say the other thing is that there's a lot of bills that over the last few years have been been proposed and have versions of them have come through. So one of them is the first act. um, And that was a a really awesome act. It hasn't made its way through Congress yet. But what that did also was doubled the size of the R&D credit. So in the near future, in in addition to some fixes we're looking at, there really could be some expansions. So again, best time to look at this is right now because you want to set yourself up where if these things pass, you're not scrambling and you're planning for them as they get passed. My so, mouth is open, listeners. It's going to, if this passes the first act, it's going to literally double the size of the credit. Is that what you just said, Jacob? That's what I think Absolutely. I you know, typically what we see is on, you know, if a company is eligible for federal and state credits, they're probably going to get something like 10 to 15% back on their spend. Wow. What this would do if the first act goes through, it would make that number more like 20, 25, 30%. Whoa. Back. So what that means in tangible terms, I always say, you know, it's nice to, to treat the R&D credit like found money. You go back at the end of the year and you say, hey, what did we do? But it's even better as a predictive tool. If you want to go hire an engineer <sighs> making $100,000 a year, um, which frankly, that used to be a, a fantastic amount, but there's a lot of companies where that's the going rate for an electric electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that person is on a design project where all their time is qualified. You're going to get right now, you know, let's say you're in California, you might get 10 to $15,000 back. If the first act passes, you'll be getting something like 20 to $30,000 of that person's salary. back. So really a good planning tool as well, because it makes... Companies are able to make hiring decisions off of those. Yes, I was just thinking 
saying that. I was just thinking if you knew that, then you could plan ahead and you could have hire two engineers because you would know that. Certainly. Oh, that could that be a major. That you're getting back. You and invest it strategically in more in hiring so. or in whatever direction you need your business to go. Whoa, game what changer. We, what we find is a lot of times our clients, the first year they do a study is the lowest amounts they get because as they move forward, they're able to say, hey, look at these areas that we're doing. What do you guys think on this? Part of our process at the end of every study is we go through and we say, these are some areas that we could improve on. Those are largely going to fall into a couple of things. Your contracts, the way that you structure your contracts okay. um, can be disadvantageous or advantageous to the credit. The documents you're keeping and the records can help or hurt. And so we make some recommendations or point out some things there. And then lastly, it's strategic initiatives. Where are you hiring? Where are you growing? What equipment are you buying? Right. What equipment are you building? And those are things that can help it. But you know, it's a year over year partnership is really the way that, that we go at, at Capstan. And what we see is increases year over year with our partners. Wow. Holy cow. This has been a whirlwind. We just talked about 40 years of R&D and it, it, it's come a long way, baby. Um, and that, that, and we it, didn't even talk about the case law, which uh, no, I won't get into now, but. Perhaps next time, listeners, let us know if that's something <laughs> you'd like to Another cup of hear. coffee for both of us, I think. Wow. No, but that's amazing. R&D has come <laughs> so far and it has, has yet to go. Listeners, this guy, was I right or was I right about Jacob Wood? Does he know everything or does he know everything? He knows everything. He really does. So if you want to talk to Jacob, Jacob, if they're intrigued, if they might have opportunities, if they want to hear more, if there's some weird glutton for punishment who want to talk to you about case law, how can they get in touch with you, Jacob? <laughs> Absolutely. So we can put my email and, and phone number in here and um, really just reach out. What we can do is we can set up a quick call where we talk through the facts. And, you know, even if it if it's not a, a piece of business that we work on together, if we can give you the facts and the, you know, go through the circumstances, then What's really helpful is that you're then armed with that as you go forward in your business. Absolutely. Just having the knowledge, you know, tease you up to be successful, even if you don't use it immediately. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll definitely, we'll include Jacob's contact info. You can also go to, um, if you go to our capstantex.com and you click on our people, you can find him there as well. And his Calendly link is there. So you can even schedule time if you prefer that. Um, Jacob, thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it so much. Thank you for coming on the pod, Jacob. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You are ugh, my pledge. Um, and listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Um, if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe? We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or go to our website, capstantax.com slash podcasts. I'm Helena Carmel here with our producer, Aaron Strongen. Thanks so much for tuning into Capstan Live. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Capstan Live. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Visit our website at capstantax.com for more info on everything we discussed today, plus breaking news, industry blogs, and more. Have a profitable day.